What I instill in my son is the ability to be free. Wow, George. On it. Free. You don't have to think like a slave. You don't have to be anybody's boy. You're free. In My Head with Jay Blessed is a transparent look into the life and mind of a Caribbean woman having human experiences. In my head. Get into my mind as I share my most vulnerable thoughts and honest experiences. I'll take you on a roller coaster of emotions as you get to know someone who might share similar experiences with you. Some might make you speechless, you'll definitely laugh. Others might make you angry and some might even make you cry. But my very real, very raw, very relatable weekly podcast will always keep you coming back for more. Join me as I talk to myself, talk to you, and even talk to some special friends in my head. (laughs) In my head is an introspective look from a voyeuristic point of view. of all my social channels and how you can connect with me please view this episode's summary to join in on the conversation use the hashtag head with jb that's h-e-a-d-w-i-t-h-j-b and follow me on instagram at real jblessed and twitter at jblessed let's get in on the conversation together don't forget to log on to my official website jblessed.com a human experience from a caribbean perspective Episode 43, I Am Not Your Slave, My Life in Hospitality, featuring George Thomas. In my head. Hey fam, we are in June 2020 and so much has happened since I recorded this episode. Actually, I recorded this episode with George Thomas back on February 24th, 2020. And yes, a lot has happened in the world. And specifically, a lot has happened in the restaurant industry since then. Before I begin, I just want to send much love to all the folks around the country who have been protesting and forcing the change that has been taking place and the change that still needs to happen. This past weekend in New York City was filled with tens of thousands of protesters, including a massive Black Trans Lives Matters march on Eastern Parkway with crowds that rivaled the West Indian Day Labor Day Parade. Man, wow. Thank you for the work that you guys are doing. Thank you for those who are on the front lines of these marches and thank you for those who are contributing and protesting in their own way all for a common goal to dismantle systemic racism to 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 stop the senseless execution of black and brown bodies rashad brooks has been added to the list that includes george floyd and brianna taylor and every other name you can think about you know black people are exhausted from being black in america And if you haven't yet heard bonus episode three, Black People Are Exhausted, featuring New York State Senator Parker, please do so. 
This week, you know, we are discussing the life of a Caribbean-born hospitality worker and also recovering Caribbean American Heritage Month still, Father's Day, and even paying homage to Pride Month all in one episode. Look how that worked out. You know, I save it until June. (laughs) And it worked itself out. And you know what? Thank God for that. That's a gift that we can create these stories that are timeless, that are evergreen. That's amazing. Um, In this episode, episode 34, George Thomas mentions previously working at fine dining trailblazing Gotham Bar and Grill. However, instead of closing temporarily to uh, curb the coronavirus outbreak, At the beginning of the lockdown on March 14th, 2020, the famed New York City restaurant Gotham Bar and Grill closed its doors permanently after 36 years in business. Independent restaurants contribute $1 trillion and 11 million jobs to the U.S. economy. In an IG post from Independent Restaurants, INDP Restaurants, in April they wrote, open quote, Congress is yet to act on a relief package that helps restaurants survive. They've created specific grant programs to help the airline industry keep their 750,000 employees working, while restaurants, which employ 15 times more people, remain closed and have laid off most of their workers, end quote. Just a few days ago in June, INDP restaurants shared uh, a report that stated, the $120 billion Independent Restaurant Stabilization Fund would grow the economy up to $271 billion, reduce national unemployment by up to 2.4%, and revitalize supply chains nationwide. Without the fund, 85% of independent restaurants could permanently close. Learn how you can help push Congress to act in establishing the Independent Restaurant Stabilization Fund and read more on these stats in this episode summary. Let's take a break from the stats and the news and let's get into this amazing story on episode 43, I Am Not Your Slave, My Life in Hospitality featuring George Thomas. In my head. Hey fam! Happy Wednesday. How are you feeling? <laughs> I hope you are in great spirits, that you're feeling good. You got money in the bank. You're eating good. You're looking good. You're losing weight. You're drinking your water. You're minding your business. Your skin is glowing. Yes, <laughs> you're taking care of your family. You're saving some money. I hope that all is well with you. Um, man, it's, it's just, it's getting better and better. I'm so excited to be back here season 2020 of in my head you guys are making this podcast so so phenomenal thank you so much for your support what a journey and you know i love to just find people sometimes just pull them into the podcast it's all about a very real very raw very relatable weekly podcast um with a focus on mental health and i try my best to incorporate you know authentic caribbean stories and people of caribbean heritage to just share with us it could be someone you know it could be someone in the community it could be someone um in hollywood but i love talking to us you know us people people i mean i find their stories intriguing and then i'm like you know what you should come on the podcast and then you hear their story and you're like damn i can relate to that that resonates with me well 
Well, I got someone like that in the studio. I got an amazing gentleman that I've had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know. And I was so moved by not just um, the way he carries himself, but the way he speaks. It just, I, I can, you know, you can tell someone, you know, I'm a good reader of energy, right? You know, y'all know that my spirits are discernment keen. <laughs> So I know he's good peoples and I wanted to bring him on and ask him the questions that I wanted to ask and I haven't yet, but do it live on the podcast where it's just organic and just uncensored and just real. So in my head, Jay Birds fam, I want you to put your hands together for hospitalitarian extraordinaire. <laughs> put your hands together for Mr. George Thomas. <laughs> Judge. Where <else> are you? <laughs> This is not how you normally speak when we're outside, okay? No. <laughs> I love the fact that we can code switch as Caribbean people. I think that is such a gift. Yeah. It's just... You have to be able to switch up because it demonstrates, you know, flexibility. And when you go out into the world, you have to put on a mask. So if you can change your mask sometimes, if you can change your mask sometimes, it's a good thing because you can't just have one mask all the time. Well, George, I want to know, is this is this your regular voice or this is your sexy in-my-head voice? I don't know if I have a sexy in-my-head voice because I've never <laughs> been in your head. <laughs> so I don't know what voices you have in there. Stop it. I don't have crazy voices in here. How yeah. about that? But I, I, I'm liking this tone, though. Gee, I'm loving the tone of his voice. Well, I've never actually been in a studio like this before, so I'm not entirely sure how no. I would speak in one. But I thought I'd speak in a way that I would be heard clearly enough. Okay, I, I like this. Because I can be quite exuberant. Oh, we want your exuberance, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we want all that is authentically George Thomas, okay? Don't hold back, okay? This is uncensored. This is real. This is down to earth. So please be your natural, true self. All right. I'm loving this. Now, in your own words, who is George Thomas? Um, George Thomas is dependent on who you talk to. To some people, I'm a loving husband and father. Um, to other people, I'm a very I'm a cornerstone of family strength. I help people in my family, so when they need something, they call me. Um, to other people, I'm a good friend and mentor. They see someone who is alone in an environment that's you and you usually don't find black men. Right. And so I'm an example there. To other people, I'm a schmuck. Um, <laughs> I'm the kind of guy who will beat you up. <laughs> by, by the way, for just, just reference, point of reference, George is like five foot two. He will fuck you up, though, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so it depends. But for me, I am an evolving spirit. I'm growing professionally. I'm becoming more self-aware. And I'm basically very happy I am spitefully willing to laugh at just about any rasting. In, you know what? I, that is something I've grown to love, getting to know you, your laughter. You have a very <laughs> boisterous, very distinct, but very, like, infectious laughter. Yeah. yeah, because life is not that serious. You know, everyone thinks that life is a serious thing. Listen, you came from nature, and nature is going to take your ass back sooner rather than later for some people. So the only room you have is to excel at life while you're living it. In other words, value what you have while you have it. Right. Because nature's coming and taking that rust from you, you know. Yo. Yeah, I've heard people like get in a panic and tell George something and George is like, 
Ah, okay. All right. So, okay, we're gonna. Okay. All right. So next. Okay. Bye. <laughs> and it's like what? Why is this funny? <laughs> Funny, but know. but now I see why. It's like you can't really do anything about yeah, it. It's, no. It's happened, and you know what? Just laugh about it. What am I gonna do? Cry? Right? How is that gonna solve? That something? doesn't solve anything. You have to do what you can do, or do what the situation demands. That's all life gives you. Just an opportunity. What does the situation demand? Do that. That's all you can do. Anything else a fuckery. Hey, I love it. And so we, we can hear with the use of one of my favorite words that you must be a Caribbean man. <laughs> <laughs> so please tell us a little bit about your Jamaican background, your childhood. Paint us this picture that has now formed who you are as a man. I was born in Alligator Pond. Um, I was born, I was brought up without the presence of my mother, which just about all of the boys in that village were you know my mother left early to go do a thing so i i ended up growing up with my grandmother so i for the good portion of my early life i thought my aunts were my sisters i like them would call my mother vivi instead of mama mm. i didn't start calling her mama until until i was a young man mm. and i grew up in uh in alligator pond i went to alligator pond uh primary and i went to new forest um school and I passed an exam to St. Elizabeth Technical where I had to walk from Alligator Pond, which was like three and a half miles, to get to New Forest, to take the bus to Santa Cruz, to get to school every morning. And then I had to walk back at night. For those who don't know Jamaica, where exactly is Alligator Pond? Alligator Pond is on the south coast of the island. It's, um, you know, it's on the south coast of the island. It's in Manchester. It's... it's um, in Manchester, near to Port Kaiser, if people know where the aluminum partners of Jamaica, where they come teeth all the soil and, and poison people. <laughs> and that's where I grew up. It's beautiful because where I was born, there is a river. We call it Alligator Pond River. And the river flows right into the sea. And the river is quite cold. So when it hits the water, it forms this natural cauldron. People used to go to go baptize and think of them as ancient all that kind of foolishness. <laughs> <laughs> In 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 your family dynamics, are you the eldest for your mother? Um, yes, you I am the eldest. For my mother. I'm the first grandchild for my grandmother, mm-hmm. and I'm the, because my mother is the first is the first girl. Mm-hmm. I have Uncle Bull. Um, Uncle Bull, I think, is the only one still alive. Uncle Sedley and Uncle Clive are both dead. So I was the firstborn to my grandmother, firstborn grandchild from her first daughter, Vivi. And and in terms of siblings, do you have? I have, a, I have a younger sister. Her name is Teresa. She lives in Florida. Okay, so now we're getting an idea of this island man. Um, when, you know, when did you leave Jamaica and where did you head? I left Jamaica. Um, I was fortunate when I was at school in, uh, at St. Elizabeth Te- Technical. There weren't much opportunity there. And so I was walking from Stets to go to Monroe College to take what I imagined would be a college entrance exam to get to America. I didn't know that that's not how the thing worked. I was just doing it. And I happened to meet a lady, happened to stop a car and give me a lift. And she happened to be the wife of Bud Stewart, who at the time owned Air Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And she hooked me up with a man called Peter Fierzer, who who, um, had Pegasus Hotel Mm. in Kingston. And he took me on then as a trainee. And then after that, I started taking some classes in upper camp, and I made it to sergeant, and I was recruited to go to England 
um, to work for Prince Charles as a guard, personal guard, wow. I, which I did for four years. And after that, I was trained as a butler. And But those things were vo- vocational things. They didn't read. They weren't a career as such. I mean, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I learned to handle myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I come back to Jamaica and I work for um, tourist board for a little bit. And then I leave again. And I ended up like traveling all over the Ross place. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you go? Uh, I went everywhere, man. I um, I went to Spain. I went to Germany. I went to France, of course. I went back to England. I went to Canada. I met a friend, and he brought me to the United States. He lived in Wisconsin. How many years ago was that? God, it's about nineteen eighty-five, eighty-six now. Wow. And so when you came to America, of all the places you had been, were you thinking, okay, maybe I might stay here, or you were still thinking about traveling? I, it was kind of the land of opportunity for me. When I, when I came here, it was like about 1989, 88, 89, and I only knew one aunt. Her name was Aunt Ivy. And she lived at Brooklyn. She lived at 555 Ocean Avenue. We never know where that there is. Wait, you remember the address? Yeah, man, because I had to find it. <laughs> yes. You know? I never taken a train like that. I mean, I've taken the trains in England, but I never took a train in America. So I had to get and find it. And I found it, and I hung out outside her door for like a day and a half before actually uh, caught her coming in so I could have a place to stay. What, what, okay, paint the picture for me. Is this winter? Is this spring? Is this summer? It's spring. It was summer. Oh, when I came God. to America, it was summer. Thank God. And I can't see you waiting outside. Yeah, man. Cold. This was a, a rough part of town, too, you know. I mean, it was right on Ocean Avenue and church. And it was a huge, rotted building. And it's the 80s. In the 80s. And all these guys were outside, you know. And it was my first fight, my first street fight. Which wait, was unfortunate. Wait, 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 wait. Hold the hell up. <laughs> what? Wait, how did we get to a street fight? <laughs> because when you, if, a, if a young black man is sitting out and wait for somebody and he looks relatively well-dressed, people are, gonna, you know, are, are going to assume things about you. And people assume things about me because I'm not very tall or look a certain way. They think I am a victim or I am victimable. But I'm not that sort of person. I'll hurt you. So wait. You're waiting for your aunt Ivy, mm-hmm. and the boy them came over. Who and live asked, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and you stand up outside because you don't know what apartment she lives in because it's a big apartment complex. Yeah, man. So you're sitting there outside. Seven A was the apartment number. Big up to whoever lived in Seven A Fifty Five Ocean right there. <laughs> <laughs> big ups. So you're sitting outside waiting, hoping. That mm-hmm. you're going to see her when she comes home. Hopefully, she come home tonight. Because I was no iPhone then, so I'm going to have no phone number. Right. So, so I have to wait. Right. And you, you, she don't have no cell phone. I go pay phone and call her. Mm-hmm. So you're outside sitting down, and fellas looking at you like, who is this dude just sitting out here like yeah. all day? What? Like, and so they come and approach you. Yeah. And I'm asking for money. And I, in my best English, I show them, listen, I'll give you what I have, but it's not going to go any further than that. And they wanted, he wanted whatever I had. And I said, don't take this too far. Don't go any further. Um, I will hurt you. So this is one guy and you. This is not a No, man, these are three guys, man. Whoa, okay. Okay, so walk us through this. You're not going to just no, skip it's over not, this it's, shit. It's not a kind of, <laughs> that's not an interesting story. I mean, I'm for, sure you have many, but this is your... For a guy this- like me, um, I, I can be quite forthright. And I have learned in my life to really defend myself physically. Right. You know, so you three guys uh, um, on drugs at the time, very unsteady on your feet, um, trying to attack me. It's a dangerous thing to do. You just, you served 
Mm-hmm. I worked for, for I worked Prince for, Charles. I worked for the Prince, yes, as a as a personal guard in Dorset. As a personal guard in the United Kingdom yes. for Prince Charles. Mm-hmm. And you just happened to be on Church and Ocean waiting <laughs> for your auntie and three fellas walk up on you, Jill mm-hmm. Short self, and think that they could mm-hmm. bully you. Yep. So what happened after? Nothing. Like, was, so was, how how did you pick them off the floor after? Like who picked them up off? Because I know that no, you had you know, to like people start screaming after a while. You know, and, you know who landed the first punch? Because somebody's mm-hmm. gonna try to hit somebody. No, well he tried. No, he tried to grab. I, at the time, I was wearing one of my auntie in Jamaica. Her name was Eva. She had given me a gold chain, you know, to protect me when I left Jamaica. Because Aunt Eva is an amazing person. And they tried to grab the chain. So I just I just turned his wrist in on itself and snapped his hand in the elbow and just punched the other one in the eye. Oh, okay. That 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 was that sounds the way you're talking about this normal, normal judge. You know what? Let me go on. I feel like they have more stories. I wanna hear more of these stories. Don't a, mess with George Young. And a not not man. And a big thing that. That's not a big thing. Yeah, wow. So you came here, you 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 finally Aunt, Aunt Ivy came home after mm-hmm. you bust their ass outside, you know. They know now not to mess with yeah. George. Did you stay there? Or? Yeah, man, I stayed. Because I, I, at the time, the only place I had to live was a student hostel on 42nd Street. At, it was called Holland. What was it called? Holland Hotel or something like that. It's on 42nd and 10th Avenue. Okay. And it was like a student hostel. So that was, that was where I was staying. Was Auntie welcoming? When she yeah, man, of course. She, right. was my mom's, she was my mom's best friend. She's not really an aunt. So she's a Caribbean aunt. Yeah, man, she's know. she's just okay. a family member. She she so helped my mother raise us in a way. So you show up on her doorstep. Yeah, man, she took you me in. Of course. Where's of your course. mom? My mom right now is in the Cayman Islands, where she was at the time. Okay, good. You know, but Aunt Ivy gave me a place to live and um, gave me a home base. Got me my first illegal social security number, which I took. I walked down to the East Village and I was walking past this um, store called Vaselka. Uh, it's a Polish store of Vaselka. And that was my first job. What what kind of store was it? It's a Polish diner. Okay, a Polish diner. Called right. Vaselka is where I started. All right. So we have you, you know, Pegasus Hotel. Mm-hmm. Then serving um, as a butler in the UK. Mm-hmm. Now you're working in a Polish diner right Absolutely. now in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I see this, this thread of service. Yes. Was that something that you were naturally gravitating towards or was it just the easiest job to get like no um food and service for me is a essential part of my spiritual identity um food and service to me is how i'll make my legacy food and service to me is the right place and right thing for me to be doing there is nothing more wholesome there's nothing more correct than for me to be involved in the food service industry because i love it i think serving someone food is the most spiritual thing you can do because the body you have here started out as a little baby now it's like this big ras body how do you think it got this way (laughs) it's just the food you eat it's just an accumulation of the food so if you can change the kind of food you put inside it changes the kind of body you have and the kind of body you have affects how you feel. Right. So my contribution to life is to try to help black people to change the kind of food they put in their bodies. I heard a quote from Chef Thomas Keller 
uh, if not the most decorated American chef. Mm-hmm. He once said, when you acknowledge, as you must, that there is no such thing as perfect food, only the idea of it, then the real purpose of striving toward perfection becomes clear, to make people happy. Yes. That is what cooking is all about. That's what cooking is all about. Cooking is about nurturing. If you if you eat a banana and I eat a banana, this banana becomes a part of George Thomas and the other banana become a part of you, right? Mm-hmm. The body has an intelligence inside it that is nurtured by food. That connection for me is the most vital human connection there is. You could have chosen to do anything in life, and yet you chose a career in hospitality. Yeah, so, so walk us through from It your started first when I was the, the first meal I cooked for my mother. So tell me about when was that and, and what did you cook? Uh, my mother, um, I cooked steamed fish. Eh, eh. Mm-hmm. Uh, with some pro- with some ground provision? No, 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 no. I don't know what you're talking about. What, steamed fish and what, rice? No. Um, it was steamed fish and green bananas I cooked for her. I've always been sort of intrigued by food. And my mother had this, my mother was living with a with with a, a man at the time who was a very, 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 very good man. His name was uh, um, Terence Malcolm. And he had a few cookbooks in the house I was reading. So I made my first steamed fish with tomato confit, which I roasted the tomatoes in the oven with uh, uh, garlic and um, onions. I added, uh, I didn't have olive oil, I added um, coconut and coconut milk and green bananas. And I steamed the fish in the oven, covered up with file and gave it to mama. And then mama looked at me and said, you can't cook, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when it started. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Yeah, man. That's how it started. My, my mother was the first person I cooked Dr. Fish for. Dr. Fish? Mm-hmm. That's I remember the what name it was. Dish? Yeah, no, it's the name of the fish. Nah, okay. What kind of, what kind of Caribbean person? I, you don't I've know never Dr. heard fish. of a Dr. Fish. You don't know Dr. Fish? No. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Today's the day I want to learn so much, okay? Yeah, Dr. Fish, man. So, so wait, work. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, now that you say that, after that being your first experience with cooking, like your first great dish that mm-hmm. mom just fell in love and after years of working in restaurant like we know that you could chef so what's your go-to dish then mine yes what's that, the, what, what's it, the it dish? it kind of depends on the season my go-to dish is a dish i learned from a, a very good friend of mine her name is lake she's from thailand she make when i came to new york i didn't have many friends and i was working at a time at a restaurant called gotham bar and grill working mm-hmm. with a lady named Laura Tomasino, who was manager, and she did some wonderful things for me. She was the first one who made sure I had a, a, an advanced sommelier because she recognized my potential. She says, no one's going to take you very seriously you know a lot about wine. So I took the advanced sommelier. With, with her direction, I did it. And another man who was master sommelier at Gotham at the time, his name was Scott Carney. They guided me towards this. And one of the places I used to go was a Thai restaurant um, called Montien. And one of the girls in there, her name was Lake, and she made me this dish once, which is konkai sap, which is ground shrimp and chicken with very spicy, very spicy with a fried egg on top on top of rice. It's still my favorite go-to dish. You know what? Um, we're we're, we're going to make sure that I get to taste this dish. <laughs> we're going to come back to this. That's my, I, that's, that's my go-to dish. I love that. And I love the fact that your go-to dish is not something that people would somehow expect that as an island man, a Jamaican man, is going to be something authentically Caribbean. No, no, no. It shows your versatility yeah. in food, right? Yes. Food is a global thing. Um, and I love the fact that we fellowship over food. Yes. 
food is 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 the way to a man's heart, they say. It's Woman's the, heart, too. It definitely Dog's is. Dog's heart, cow heart, elephant. <laughs> any, any kind of rat's heart you, you want to get to. You can talk to me. I can hear you better when I eat. Okay? <laughs> yeah, any, any heart you want to get to get them some food. So you mentioned, you know, Gotham Bar and Grill and, and actually being mentored. Yes. Right? Let's Tell us some of the places you've worked. Um, Gotham Bar and Grill was the first sort of high-end New York restaurant I worked I was working at a place called Manhattan Ocean Club, and one of the guys there recognized where I was, and, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money. And he said, you know, you should come downtown because I work at a place called Gotham. I didn't know anything about it. So I, I walked down there. I was wearing a, um, a denim shirt with an orange tie and a tan suit at the time. And I walked in and I met Lori Tomasino and she sat me down and she gave me a job. And that's where it started. And I worked at Gotham for many, many years with Alfred and Lori. And I left there to sell wines with um, Daniel Jonas. And I didn't really like the whole wine selling thing because it took me out of the restaurant business, which is where I wanted to be. So I took a job as a, a captain at the time, at Mercer Kitchen for John George. Wow. And I met a very powerful person named Christophe Chauton-Michaud. And he took me with him to Danielle when Danielle first opened and made me a senior captain in the dining room. Wow. Wow. After having just met me, like, you know, worked with me for less than a year. And that was life-changing. And at Danielle, I ran into a man who has now passed away. And he challenged me one Sunday. He came and said, you know what? I really don't like this food at this restaurant. But I have a restaurant downtown. Not have, a restaurant, a visit. The restaurant then was called um, David Boulay. And he says, you go there with your wife and eat. And if you don't like the, if you like the food better, I want you to go work there because I need you to be waiting on me at all times. I didn't think much... (laughs) What a challenge. Yeah, I didn't think much of it. It it, it was all fun and games to me, you know, at the time. But I went and I ate the food and it blew me away. Wow. Where was this restaurant? This was in Tribeca. Okay. Chef's name is David Bullet. David Bullet. And the the metro there at the time was, uh, um, what's his name now? Uh, uh, I forget. His name will come to me in a minute. But... I was treated very well there, and on that gentleman's recommendation, they hired me. His name was Didier Palange. He was a maitre d' there. Wow. Didier Palange. So he was a maitre d' mm-hmm. at this restaurant, came to your restaurant, came to Danielle, yeah. ate, and was like, basically, he scouted you. Yes. He scouted which, you. Which is not done anymore. Chefs do frown on that. But at the time, no, I was just an insignificant guy, you know. I was just this 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 guy that he recognized. In but, your mind, yes, not to him. Not not to him though. Right. So Didier took me down there, and I stayed at Boulet on and off for about uh, sixteen years. On I, and off, why? On I left. Off. I left twice. Okay. I left twice. Once because David added, didn't carry insurance to the staff, mm-hmm. so I was recruited at one point to work at restaurant uh, Alan Ducasse at the Essex House by okay. the then maitre d' Yanis Stanizer. Uh, that lasted about a year. 
um, because there was union and I just couldn't deal with it well because you couldn't do the dish. If the dishwasher decided not to do the dishes, you couldn't go in and do it. And coming from Boulay, I didn't quite understand that. I'm more mature now. I understand. So, so were they doing it wrong? I believe. No, 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 no. They weren't doing it wrong. But it's just a different. It was a stylistically okay, different. Okay, got it. Meaning, if I went to the dishwasher and I said, "We're closing up soon. Make sure all the dishes are done," he's not gonna give me lip. Okay. At Ducas, the they, they'll just tell you they're not doing it, and that'll be. I didn't work for the union, so I didn't quite get it. And I went back to um, David, and I was there for about another day when I was recruited by another another gentleman. Uh, Alfredo Ruiz, who was a general manager at um, Del Posto. Mm. I went to Del Posto and I achieved something I think now remarkable. A lot of people see it as as, uh, quite remarkable. I was a part of the team that got delivered to Del Posto. Still the only four stars rating for any Italian restaurant in New York City. Wow. 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 So a lot of people do know me from that, but being a part of that team was very, very important. It was very. It was a difficult time for me because my mom was sick at the time. My wife and I were going through some issues. You know, it was a difficult time for me, but um, it it was symbolic so that I did it then. So let's stop for a moment. Um, I love the fact that you can be transparent enough and say at this particular juncture in my life while I'm at Del Posto left from Boulay and mm-hmm. just transitioning because it, for, for a lot of people who work in hospitality it can be a seasonal job yeah um, and, and and I love the fact that you talk about being unionized as well like you know there are some people that don't even know that it can be in a union working in hospitality mm-hmm. industry um, but you talked about things that's going on in your own personal life mm-hmm. and this is something I want to touch on here for people that work in hospitality. You, your, your objective as a maitre d or a captain or anyone in front of the house, mm-hmm. essentially, that is in the face of a guest, is to ensure that they're having the most memorable and amazing time. Yes. Regardless of the shit going on in your yes. personal life. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't hide it as you would if you were a salesperson over the phone. No, you can't. Right? Um, and even sometimes that's hard to hide because you can hear it in your voice. But you can't really hide it when you have to look someone in their eyes. In their eye. eye, yes. And here you are going through your own shit and having to put on this act, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time... This is why actors do well in hospitality. Mm-hmm. You have to act. You have to act. You have to throw aside, put to the wayside your mm-hmm. own personal issues and feelings and smile yes. and genuinely do it. And genuinely mean it. Your money depends on your life, how your you livelihood engage depends on it. with your guest. Yes. How have you been able to master this? Um, because it can be a challenge, you know, mm-hmm. like dealing with life. And then having to be absurd. This is something that's taken me quite a long time to really master, to really uh, um, maneuver, to maneuver myself in such a way that um, every time you approach someone, they see you, really. And if you have things in your life that you cannot put aside or mask, it's going to affect or influence how you treat people. One of the things that is taking me a lifetime to learn is to have empathy. Things may be difficult with me, but you cannot bring that with you. Mm. You cannot bring that with you. What makes me a successful metro is that I am always a little bit below my guests. I'm never above them. Mm. I'm never on their same level. I am a little bit below. 
And that little bit, in that little bit below, I have a great deal of power because I treat people well. Yeah. I treat them genuinely well. A maitre d' is more than just someone who makes you feel great in a restaurant. It's important. A maitre d' is the eyes and ears of the chef in the dining room. Right. I represent what the chef is doing in the dining room. So at all times, if the food is glorious, the atmosphere is glorious, I, haven't, I have to make extra effort to be as glorious. So the experience is seamless. Right. This is, There's so many like layers to this. I'm going to try to like my do my best in having you explore it with me. Um, Danny Myers once said that a hospitalitarian, this is what the a, a phrase he coined. Which I never heard before. That's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, it's from his book, Setting the Table. Mm-hmm. A really great book. If you are listening and you're in hospitality, and not just hospitality, you're in management or in service. You serve people, whether it's in a, a restaurant or in a, or in a hospital or in a church. It's a book you should read. It's called Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Uh, he said a hospitalitarian is someone with a very high HQ, hospitality quotient. Um, it's a it's someone whose emotional makeup leads them to derive pleasure from the act of delivering pleasure. Right. I I read somewhere once where David Chang had said, um, you know, oftentimes if a, if a child goes home and tells their parent that. I got a job for Google. They get so excited. Yeah, my child is going to be working for Google. But if you come home and say, oh, I got a job working for uh, Chef Wolfgang, Wolfgang Puck, well, you're going to be working in a restaurant. Parents or people don't understand how much emotional intelligence it takes mm-hmm. to work in a service-based industry Yes, with people of different backgrounds and makeup and entitlements as opposed to sitting behind a desk and on a computer. Right. To work in a service industry requires a great deal of emotional maturity on your part. You really have to be able to take care of yourself first. Mm. There's a great phrase in um, French culinary tradition. It's called mise en place. It means everything in its place. But it also means you'll have to take care of yourself. You have to know how to treat yourself well. If you're not able to treat yourself well, you will never be able to treat someone else well. So being in the service industry means that you have to have the capacity to to really take care of yourself, to really treat yourself as the treasure that you are, and then deliver, without arrogance, deliver this to your guest. So how do you approach your profession dealing with the expectations of management, of your guest, and even of yourself? Clear-eyed. That's the first thing. You have to look at each situation and do exactly what the situation demands. Not more. Hopefully not less. But you have to really see the situation with enough clarity to do what it demands. Don't I spent many years imposing ideas on people, imposing ideas on myself, imposing ideas on my family, but not doing what the situation demands, not seeing it clearly. Now I can, with some level of maturity, with some inner reflection, see things clearly, do what the situation demands, and deal with the pluralities of people, not make enemies of people. And nobody has time for that. Right. You can make enemy of anybody. Wow. You have to take responsibility for what you do 
and grow with each experience. So how I deal with hospitality is taking responsibility. If they say I have to be there at 4, I'm not there at 4.10. I'm there at 4. Whatever happened yesterday is behind me. I am suited, cleaned, and ready to go. I'm informed, I'm knowledgeable, and I'm in the place where whatever is required of me to do, I am fully prepared. My mise en place yes. is set. Yes. If your mise en place is set, you you're hope, fine. You, you, and if it's not, everything is Lord affected. God. Well, everything gone. But this is this is an analogy for life as you talk about hospitality, mise en place, everything in its place. Like yes. One little thing, someone not coming mm-hmm. in to do their opening mise their opening duties yep. can set the entire restaurant and the whole thing, off. Because the restaurant and business is incredibly fragile. Yes. Right. It's very fragile business. You don't have, and it's a very emotionally driven business as well. Oh, a lot of emo- lot of egos, a lot of emotions, a lot of things. You have to really put, look at the situation, what it demands, and do what it demands. And if you can do that, you'll be a successful restaurateur because one of the conceits of mine is I'm still sort of like a unicorn. There are not that many black <laughs> metrides around. There are not many examples. We are so flowing in the spirit because I was just about to say that, yeah, in fine dining ex- establishments, there are very few of very us. Very few. So how does it feel to sometimes be the only person of color or a Caribbean person in the room at the front of the house, even in the it restaurant? It takes courage. Uh, one of the difficulties I was going through when I, while I was at Del Posto, even though I was learning, was the recognition that I was alone. And for a long time, I found that terrifying. I was completely and totally alone with demands on you at all times. And I didn't handle all of it as intelligently as I should have, but I've learned from that. And But the loneliness, the lack of friendship will bother you if you don't find a way to deal with it in a constructive way. The, 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 the lack of mentorship, the lack of people with whom you can speak, who can guide you, who can help you. I mean, just seeing another person who's black sometimes is just enough to make you feel great. Right. You don't see anybody who look like you? Right. <laughs> Ross. Right. It, right. It's, it's, it's really tough. And one of the things, one of the conceits, one of the things I hope I live to see in this country is more black people in positions of 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 management in the restaurant business right. you know right. in 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 michelin caliber kind of restaurant management because it's a glorious industry and it's the most important gift you can give yourself if you can cook yourself or your family a very good meal that's the most important gift i know the house i know the car i know the this other that the food is what drives you. It's your source of energy. It's your life. If I can put a beautiful plate of food in front of you, I'm doing something. It's, it's, so you can find people of color in hotels. Yes. Um, you can find them in restaurants. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to fine dining restaurants and hotels, not it, many. they're very scarce. And it goes back to mentorship. And you've had mentors who are not the same color yes. as you. Yes. And we need to acknowledge that because I remember being the only black woman working at the front of the house at 11 Madison Park mm-hmm. when it had just become the world's best restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that was scary. <laughs> and not only was it scary, it was also 
a beautiful experience, but it was one of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. And I can state this now because there were people who were actively doing things to harm me. Mm-hmm. They would push me in the hallway, and this is, I'm talking about Caucasian men, and then pretend they didn't do it. I, I, I firmly believe someone put something in my food one day because I had crazy, like, gastroenteritis. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought I was going to wow. die. Mm-hmm. And then and then it, it's like they were constantly doing things to have me be the angry black woman. And I was constantly fighting within myself to be that strong black woman who can mm-hmm. be classy and hold my tongue. But they wanted to bring on the Negro in me. <laughs> so I just was like, fuck this shit. I can't do this. This is the... Uh, this sh- how do you, the man who was on 55 Ocean at church, mm. <laughs> who laid out three dudes on the yeah. floor? In addition to everything, I'm also a rather competent martial artist. I'm a, uh, I, <laughs> I, but you can't be beating other people in the people restaurant. So how do you manage? Because what martial arts teaches you is the ability to settle a conversation. Mm. I don't have to. I know I can. So that makes me strong. I am not afraid of just about anybody. And knowing that, knowing that, having that competence in me, inside my head, inside my heart, inside my brain, knowing I am stronger than you. That confidence. Yes. It's, it's. That's something I heard Marcus Garvey talk about in in confidence. When you have that confidence, you've already won. Yep. He said that. That's uh, I'm paraphrasing. But people still find ways to push you. You know, people do find it's always intriguing. Have you had an experience like that where someone was constantly? <laughs> okay, so can you tell us one of those experiences? No, I can't. I can't do that because um, New York is a, very, is, a, is a very small town. Yeah, you know oh. I mean, New York is a small town. Yeah, and you start talking about people, and you know, I'm not on social media. Certainly, I'm not on Twitter. I am not the least interested in what everybody has to say because I have found that a lot of people are idiots. So I don't go on Twitter and listen to what this one says about that. But it's a very, it's it's the way of the future. That's how young people are speaking now. There's Everyone has an opinion about it. So you have to be really careful. I mean, I know I have faced some terrible things from people. Terrible things. Things that make me sit on the road and ball. Wow. You know, we focus on mental health on this podcast, mm-hmm. and I always love it when guests can be really forthcoming and not put on bravado and be like, no, I'm good. No, mm-hmm. I know martial arts. No, no, I no. sit down and root in a ball. Yeah. I was so stressed out. I was like, I, I want to fuck these people up, but I'm going to just go outside and cry yeah. because you I need this goddamn job. You I got to take care of my I family. I had a wife who was very sick at the time and a son at home. I have a mother who was very sick who needs me. I have to. I was. I was hiding money from her. I have to send it to Jamaica to help them. Mm. I had a whole heap of things going on. You, you, I. My life is bigger than just me. Right. You know, it's bigger than just me, and you have people who are depending on you. You know, wow. so you can't. You can't do what you want. You know, you had to suck up a few things, but. But but still, uh, give me a story of the hardest thing you've had to face on the job, and how did you handle it? <laughs> um, one of my great unwillingness is to sit in front of computers okay, and do schedules and do this and that and the other thing. So you hate the technicality of it. You just can't lo- stand it. It's right. just a, it's just a, I mean, I am looking forward to the time when robots are in charge and I can just tell it what to well, do. Well, we have Alexa and Sirius mm, yeah, here too. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm alive to see those things. At the time, we didn't have them. And I was charged with what was called in those times um, 
opening guard and close. It was at Restaurant Daniel and Metro D at the time, tough, very polished Frenchman, but tough. And um, guests came in and it was lunch and he said to me rather casually that the check is going to be prepaid. And I honestly forgot because it was busy lunch. Right. And this is 22 years ago. Right. It was a busy lunch. It was busy. And I forgot. Oh. And I gave the two ladies the check. Oh. Turns out that they shouldn't have gotten it. Yes. That metro D made me open, guard, and close. No, you won't understand what that means. That means arriving in a restaurant in the morning at 9.30. That means closing lunch and... Uh, ironing and resetting the dining room for the dinner. Mm. It means working the shift at dinner, closing, resetting for the morning, returning next morning and, and do, do it, it all over again. He had me do that for 33 days. Whoa. that That's like solitary confinement. <laughs> <laughs> In a nice fine dining. It's, it's just like, it's horrible. Yeah. And you couldn't shout. You couldn't. And you had to be there on time. You, you had to be there on time. And you got to be the and, last one. And he was hoping that I would falter. He was hoping that I would drop because it was tough. But I didn't. And it built you. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, so let's lighten it up then. You know, have you ever had a powerful experience with a guest or a colleague that left you feeling happy and content and them feeling the same and, and them feeling so important that they instantly fell in love with you? One of the most difficult persons I'd ever met was a French gentleman. He worked at a restaurant in Switzerland called Jade. He came to work with us, open with us at Daniel as uh, opening maitre at the time. And he had never seen a black man on a dining room floor. Mm. He had a knack for saying to me, when he says, when, when he says to me, he had a knack for saying to me, you know, in civilization, this is what we do. Because <laughs> he was subtly in, <laughs> insinuating that I, you're not from civilization. I remember I was, 22 years, I was, you know, I thought I was the cat's meow, man. I was in my Paul Smith. I was just discovering Paul, Paul Smith. Smith. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my thing, you know. Nice and I, I touched him on his, on his sleeve. He went home, changed his suit, came back, and said, never touch me again. Mm. That man and I became the best of friends. You touched him on his sleeve. He went home and changed his suit. Mm -hmm. Never touched me again. No, he and I are the best of friends. How did you do that? How did I do what? Just as, you know, when you're black, you touch people when you talk to them. Yeah. You know, you, you would touch a hand or, you yes. know. Because I thought, hey, no. So I learned a lot about boundaries. I learned a lot about knowing who I am and staying in my place, knowing my place, but th thriving within that knowledge, thriving by staying in my place, and but still thrive. Wow. Wow. And in the midst of doing that, you guys developed a camaraderie. Oh, my God, yes. And a mutual respect Absolutely. For each other. When his wife... You and know, that was a learning him. experience for because yeah. again, like you said, and I'm guilty of it. We as Caribbean people and Black people, we touch when we talk. Exactly. And this is the age you of consent. You, you can't do no. that. You cannot do that. No. Because you don't know people's triggers. Oh. I mean, I've had people write letters to restaurants about me. You know, I've had people come concoct all kind of stories. You know, I've faced all these things. 
you know, and it is, some of them were quite terrifying. You know, people will write letters where they don't want me near their table. They don't take my wine, which is one of the reasons Laurie Thomas, you know, recommended I actually took the advanced sommelier because people would not take your recommendation. So I said, okay, you won't take my recommendation. I'll go to France. So I went to France. I traveled around the vineyards. I met people. I came back. So now I have knowledge. My knowledge is based on the fact that I went. So when people say, what is the difference between pulling the Monoche from Olivier Laflave and pulling Monoche from uh, Anne-Claude Laflave, I know the difference because I've gone there. Wow. So, but it took a while to know that, you know, you, you make a recommendation for a vintage, you say something, people will just simply, they're not going to take your word for it. You have taken your time to perfect um your love for hospitality, mm-hmm. and in so doing, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's yes. how you treat people and yes. how you want to be treated. Absolutely. And how you care for yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to recommend something to someone that you would would not want for yourself. Right. Hospitality is a lifestyle. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I want to... Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm like back and forth. I'm like, what do I say next? When I was at Boulay, one one of the fortunate things that happened to me at Boulay was a gentleman named Glenn Collins was doing a feature in New York Times at the time about black people in unusual places, mm. like black people who are surgeons or judges, but in unusual places. Isn't that kind of a condescending kind of title of a story? Could be, but you don't want, you can't fix everything about life. You look at what's fortunate about it and take that with you. You can't fix everything. I know. In 2020, we are still coming up with first yeah. for black people, which <laughs> yeah. is crazy. Exactly. Right? So he featured me on the New York Times. Wow. When I was at, if he, I was the main feature for New York as a, a black man in, as a metro in a four-star dining room at the, Wow. Wow. So even though there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if it, there are black people in and he the, the article also was about, you know, the differences. This wealthy white man and this wealthy black man have the same disease. They go to different hospitals. How is one in five years? How is another in five years? And there is a difference. There is a difference in how people treat you. Yes. What you have to do now is. What do you deal with that? Because every moment of your life, life gives you a choice. Right. Is it poison or food? Mm-hmm. Up to you. Are you going to eat it or are you going to throw it away? Yeah. So you have a choice every moment of your So I've taken these situations and either they're going to kill me or make me stronger. I deciding or they're going to make me stronger. You've learned enough over your years, not just in your profession, but just in life to, you know, to solidify the principles that you live by and uh, to build your character. And you mentioned that you have a son. Yes. So what are some of the principles that you've been firm in teaching him from a young age? to What learn? I want for my son is to be a developed human being and not to think like a slave. Wow. What I want for my son, what I've instilled in my son, is to be free in his thoughts. My son is a very, very bright boy, very bright. But what I don't want for him is to feel that he has to live his life through me. My son is not mine. It was just my gift from nature mm-hmm. that he was born through me. He doesn't belong to me. Mm-hmm. So my, what I instill in my son is a gift of the freedom that you are in a safe place. Nobody mm-hmm. can come here, come beat you up. 
You have money in the bank. Nobody can take things from you. What I instill in my son is the ability to be free. Oh, George. Own it. Free. You don't have to think like a slave. You don't have to be anybody's boy. You're free. You have your own house. You have your own money. And whenever you think the time is right for you to be doing what you want, do it. It is not my life. It is your life. I am here to give you protection. Nobody can come fuck with you. So take your time and do what you want. Take your time. Why do you get so emotional and passionate when you talk about your son? What is it in you as you... As you think, and you, refer, you it's, use it's, the word it's, slave. It's, it's, Has it's anyone ever called you that in, oh in service? Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. I w- it happened at uh, Gotham Bar and Grill years ago, years and years ago. But slavery is a mentality that I'm coming to understand. Thinking as a slave, right. um, I'm coming to really understand how manipulative this country is in terms of it's how it treats black people. Yes. I'm coming to terms with this idea of you are enslaved. If you choose to be. If you choose to be. And even when you choose not to be, the imposition is there. The system is there. It's there. Built. And I get emotional about it because it's time. I am much older now. I don't know how much time I have left. And I worry that I won't have enough time to give him. Mm. But um, slavery, you know, in terms of how this country functions, man, make you think that, you know, you you eat this food, you're still going to be healthy. You're not. Mm. If you don't eat the right food, you don't give the body the right fuel, it's going to make you sick. And you look around at my own people walking around, them foot swell up so, them belly big so. How you think it happened? How you think this happened? The food you eat or do that? Right. You have to change your level of hospitality in your home. Mm. Looking at your fridge, what in there? Mm. If what in there is not alive, dash it where? Yes. Because it's not good. Yes. You, if you don't have hospitality in a, your house, you're going to kill your picnic them. Charity begins at home, right? Yes. You can love strangers and want to give them a good experience and you can't do it for you. And you can't cook. You have BMW auto door up in the fridge to rass and all I see in there is rotten cucumber, rotten bell pepper, okay, the onion, them are spout, the garlic are spout, everything are spout except you. Mm. Your foot swell up, you can't even walk. Mm. You're not drinking of water. Everything in there is a soda. So hospitality means your ability to nurture yourself first, and then maybe you can take care of somebody else. Marcus Garvey, Jamaican Jamaican (laughs) national hero, once said, if you have no confidence in self, you are twice defeated in the race of life. With confidence, you have won even before you've started. I mentioned that before. Yes. And I say it again. Mm -hmm. I am loving the fact that you can be you with us I, I respect it I welcome it I am so grateful I can't you, be anybody else you know I'm grateful that you, you are, you're here you I can't know? be anybody else man a Telling lot of people are, are, are well by different people I'm just George come finally get apart I'm just George I'm, ne- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not anybody else you know just to pay, just to go back to your son um, 
you mentioned your wife also, and you're in an interracial relationship. Yes. Um, how how has it been teaching your black son? Mm-hmm. Protecting your black son mm-hmm. in this state in this climate still 2020, we are still mm-hmm. seeing black men being yes. lynched yes, in yes, different yes. forms. Uh-huh. And after you've taken a lot of beating so he wouldn't, you mm-hmm. still live in fear for him. Mm-hmm. How 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 hard is it for you raising a young black man in 2020? Very, very challenging. Um, but the important thing, like I said, is to give him protection. Right. To but make you can't sure. can't be there all the time. Can't be there all the time. But at least the protection is there all the time because it's in his head. Got it. He's aware of my presence every moment. And he knows that whatever is going on, I'm there to protect him. He is protected. He's a home where he doesn't have to hide from. He doesn't have to pretend anything. He's safe. You know what? I have a question for you, and I want to challenge you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Jamaicans have had a a history of being against LGBT people, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to know your thoughts on on this. Fuck with that. What are your honest thoughts recently? Recently, Dwayne Wade has publicly been supporting his birth 12-year-old son's decision Mm -hmm. to identify as a transgendered girl named Zaya. Right. You know, Wade told People Magazine during an exclusive interview his hopes for his older daughter, Zaya, Mm -hmm. um, are the same as for his other children, for them to see their full potential. Mm -hmm. Um, He's come under a lot of flack, but the fact is his father is standing in the gap for his child. Mm -hmm. And he's making it known that we've got you no matter what. And we see you and I see you how you see you. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? What are your thoughts? In Jamaica, uh, uh, um, gay people have faced a lot of oppression. And it's like any time you feel stronger than somebody else, you're going to oppress them. It's the same reason man beat up a man. Because ju- man just beat up a man because they're stronger than them. And they can. Any time a woman becomes stronger than you, you get fucked to ass, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so people just beat up other people because I'm stronger. And in Jamaica, it is, it is prevalent, how I feel about it. The strongest influences on my life has been mm-hmm. men. I didn't call them in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Men have been, they have helped me. Mm. I, was never the, I was never a victim. I was never the kind of person who was sexually abused. Mm. I was the, if anything, I was doing the abusing because me used to play with little girl them in the church. Jesus have mercy. <laughs> the, the, what? Okay, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> so I was never that kind of person. But right. they, there were people who helped me. And they helped me because I think gay people have a certain spiritual insight the way women do. And I, it has helped me. They've helped me deal with difficult things. Right. They've, they've given me opportunities that I would never normally have. Right. They've turned me on to things I would never normally be turned right. on to. One of the best friends I had who's passed away years ago from AIDS named Norman Clummings. Mm-hmm. One of his uncles, his name was, he's also passed away from AIDS. We used to call him Aunt Aziza. He used to do my taxes when, when it was illegal before I had a certificate. <laughs> Talk number. about it. Yeah, yeah. So he used to do my taxes and make up numbers that I had this picnic and that picnic so I could get some money back. You know, we're talking real, real shit on it. Of course. (laughs) But Oswald Henry, what's his name? We used to call him Aunt Aziza. 
was the first one to bring me to the Met Opera. He was the first one to introduce me to the Japanese percussion drumming, which I love very much. Because wow. when I run, that's what I think of is the, pro, the percussion, the, 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 the drum, rhythm. the coda drums. And Ozzy Henry helped me navigate life when things were difficult for me. You found a level of empathy and yes. understanding. They, uh, from yes, this they would man. understand. Yes, and not only him. Uh, uh, Norman was he. Uh, Norman encouraged me to cook, and something I still love to do. When Norman have Norman used to throw these parties at him house, impromptu. <laughs> Norman would come home at from work. He used to work at Sears and American Express at the time. He would and I was working at Gotham, and we lived uh, on, on Upper West Side. He would come home and deck out the Ross house and, <laughs> and invite that, people and, and say, George, yeah, cook. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just do my thing and we would have them. And then Sunday morning after partying. All night. All night. <laughs> we go shopping and then we teeth people flowers. <laughs> we would and cut up and carry them back to the house and then this Ross bouquet and then we cook brunch. Right. So yes. what people feel, how people I have no problem with anybody who anybody wants to sleep with. I think people are overly obsessed with sexual organs. Sexual organs are only pertinent when you go to the bathroom or when you go to the or bedroom. Agenda you know, it, It's none of your ass business. <laughs> wait, wait, what's your problem? If if them are fucking more for me. Jesus have mercy. That's what I see. I mean, where are them? Where are them? Go, go, go. Where? What, what is your problem? You must have the man to bed. Yo, Caribbean parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, why do you want to do yeah, that? Like, it makes no sense at all. Right. It, it's, a, it's a sort of oppression that we have learned from people who has oppressed us. <laughs> if you oppress other people, yeah, idiot. Man used to whip your ass 50 years ago. Now you're going to whip somebody. You haven't right. learned anything. Right. Talking about that, perfect segue. Caribbean parents have rigid beliefs in punishment. And foolishness almost, almost always leading to physical punishment Foolish, what are your views foolishness. on that i am hoping that in my lifetime those things stop thank you if you're not educated enough to teach children don't have any or to talk to them if you're not educated enough to have a conversation with your children you can't have it right because uh, when you get frustrated you're going to hit them right. it's the same reason idiot men hit women yes they can't because you can't uh, you can't use your words right Right. Right? I, you I, cannot articulate. Uh, so you're going to lick them because, you, you know, there are certain times when you find yourself in a situation in the East Village in a bar and you have to settle a boy with a punch in the mouth. That's a different thing. You know, yeah, it, it's warranted. You it's know, a you, different you know, thing. We understand. You know, but but can, you can't do that to your child you who, can't come who you should be talking be, to. Because you. You, you can't relate to them. Those things are wrong. Yes. They are wrong. They're, I used to... Let me tell you something. <laughs> When I grew up in Jamaica, there was <clears throat> a such a thing called caning. A rattan cane, when it hits you, would take the piece of your skin. your skin with it. Now, if people cannot even visualize what that kind of pain is like. The first time a teacher beat me at primary school, her name was Alma Powell. I beat that Ross teacher. Jesus, said, Lord, up. <laughs> <laughs> How she dare said, you put your hand no, on my she picnic? Said, Any day you put your hand on my picnic. Wow. So. And you see how your grandmother created a safe space for you to feel course. protected. That you can't beat your picnic. Caribbean people, who don't stop that. Thank you. If you don't have education enough, 
to raise a child, don't have it. Go get an education first. Give yourself a foundation. Get some money. Buy a house if you can. Buy a house. Get a nice rental somewhere. Give get some therapy. You, you know, talk to somebody. And then you know, go have picnic. But you know, can't have picnic and have picnic. Jesus, you know what, George? We're gonna bring you back too. I love this shit. It, I'm, it, I'm, it, I, it's I love true. It. These things ought to stop. It ought to stop now. It ought to stop now. Yes. It's enough of this. We have to break these We are not slaves. Yes. You're not slaves anymore. Don't do these things. We need to stop sense. slave beating our children. No, can't do that. And if Enough you of that. feel yourself getting to a point of such deep frustration that your first instinct is to hit, then I want you to identify that you have some problems. You have some of issues. You, have you need to talk to somebody because you can't articulate how you feel well enough. Would you, you know, flip flip it? Would you like it if your man, your your employer, got so upset with you because you I made a mistake and want to fuck you up? In that public? was happening fifty years ago. Huh. And why do you do that to your child? And then you say how you're working so hard for your child but can't have a honest, open, transparent conversation with your child, even if it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you, George. I want to come back to hospitality real quick because this this question is bugging me since you've seen the transitions from the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s to 2000s, right? Right. Um, how has hospitality and service changed from then to now? And you know, Has it improved? Hospitality has, has not, not changed. Uh, service has not changed. What has changed is people's perception and regard for it. Mm. When we were, people are now with with alarming speed and regu- regularity can tell you exactly how they feel at any given time by using Twitter. Any simple thing that happens in review. a restaurant, they will give you a review so fast your head would spin. Right. And I think people do it to the restaurant industry because it's easy. Right. Right. If people were doing that sort of thing to their doctors and their dentists and their lawyers, you wouldn't have any bad doctor or dentist or lawyer or us. Right. Uh, so hospitality has not changed. What has changed is people's ability to force their their dissatisfaction and force you to recognize it and change it. That has changed. Twitter, before there was one review at the New York Times, everyone was afraid of it. Now you're afraid of everybody with a phone. Right, or every blog, food blogger. Yeah, so... Hospitality hasn't changed. People come in, they need to be greeted warmly and honestly. Good evening, welcome. May I pour you some water? Yes. Yes. Is it an evening for champagne or cocktail? Cocktail. Served. Menus. This is what you should have for dinner. Served hot to the right person on time. Smile. Enjoy your meal. Done. Danny Myers once said, Don't judge a restaurant by the honest mistakes it makes. Do judge a place by how effectively... And thoughtfully, it strives to overcome those mistakes. Absolutely People correct. will generally forgive an honest mistake when someone takes responsibility for it with genuine concern. Absolutely correct. And restaurant professionals should always value difficult people. Because difficult people are the one who will identify your flaws. Yes. Welcome Dif- it. Welcome yes. It. Difficult people are people you should welcome. And, and that's where I made a name for myself, by dealing with difficult people. Right. Because I make them feel great. And it takes a ter- certain yes. skill set you have to, to see the gold in exactly. that. Exactly. Difficult people are the things that no matter how much you've thought about this, mm-hmm. Mrs. Giffniff will come in and point out the one thing that Jesus you forgot God. to, to oh fix. Oh, my God. And she'll dog your ass on it. And when you do get it right, she don't want to smile and let you know no. you got it right. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. The because fact that she, she didn't complain yes. is just great enough. It's great enough. <laughs> right. So that is definitely... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> difficult people are what you should value because it teaches you. It teaches you humility and it teaches you to be better. Yes. We're getting ready to wrap up now, George. I want to ask you um, this final question. Mm-hmm just to frame everything. And man, I've learned so much, not just about you, but about your beliefs, your hospitality. And it just, it, it really, you know, I really, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. I really <laughs> did. I really did. I really did. I, I, I wanted to ask you about Windrush. I couldn't ask you that. I think we'll save that for another day because I love you. So I want to bring you back. <laughs> Before you go, what are the key components to being an excellent leader in this service-based industry? To be an excellent leader, the first key component is to fix yourself, is to allow your intelligence to work for you, not against you. If you are going to be effective at leading other people, you have to be effective at leading yourself. Bars. 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 We can just (laughs) fucking end the episode. (laughs) Bars. Drop some. So what makes me effective as a team leader is my willingness and willingness to work hard. And I am as fierce a critic on myself. It's not a punishment. No. It's a gift. No. To challenge yourself. Challenge myself to do what you can. And I let you know I can do what you are doing. We're only doing it together to balance out the work as a team. And we're working together, not against each other. That's why people follow me all over the place, because I am am proud to to have led people, to have led dining rooms, and people will still call me, George, what should I do, George? Because to be an effective leader, you have to use, your intelligence has to work for you, not against you. Wow, George. All right, so people have fallen in love with you right now. We know we can't find you on social media. So no. where are you right now? Do you want to tell us where you at? Like where? No, you I can't do that because I need their permission. You know, I'm picking nice. five to count. <laughs> He's around. So if you do see him, make sure you learn his voice. Matter of <laughs> fact, you don't even have to learn his voice. Just look for a five foot something. <laughs> Jamaican man who ran his shit in a restaurant. That's probably him. Matter of fact, um, before we wrap up, who would you like to send some love to? Um, my mother. Four. Yeah. Yeah, ma. How she, old is she now? My mom, I don't know. Mama, you know, mama, 80 something now. Nice. 80 something now, late, you know. My mom, certainly. My, um, my, my aunt in Jamaica, who, who I hope would hear this. Yes. Aunt Cathy, she's dying, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I have to go see her. We'll send a link so she can Yeah, man, yeah, man, yeah, man. My aunt Ethel. My aunt Ethel really is the powerhouse of the family, you know. Because she take care of everybody. She's the last girl. And Aunt Etel, if you ever hear this, big up. Oh, I love that. In my head. There are a total of 33.5 million people who have lost their jobs since March 2020, accounting for an unemployment rate of 14.7%, according to Yahoo Finance. According to the National Restaurant Association, two out of three restaurant employees have lost their jobs. According to the James Beard Foundation, restaurants, on average, laid off 91% of their hourly workforce and 70% of salaried employees due to COVID-19-related closures. 50 million jobs were at risk worldwide in the travel and tourism sector, which accounts for the 10% of the global GDP. And that's according to World Travel and Tourism Council. And they continued, food preparation and service is the second most 
common occupation in the United States, while waiting tables is the eighth most common. These are just some of the hospitality labor statistics. You can learn how you can help push Congress to act in establishing the Independent Restaurant Stabilization Fund and read more on these stats in this episode summary. In my head. Yo, on the flip side, I want to shout out Stratus, Dompu, and David at Brooklyn Chop House for the work that they're doing. Um to stay ahead of the curve. You can read more on this episode summary, but listen, they got touchless kiosk and food lockers for the new Brooklyn Dumplin' Chop House on the Lower East Side. And they've implemented thermal scanners at the front door and seven foot tall partitions separating tables and staff wearing face shields. Plus all their plates and utensils are saran wrapped for every guest that will soon enter into Brooklyn Chop House, one of my favorite restaurants. Yo, fine dining will never be the same post COVID. New York City Outdoor dining is scheduled to return on June 22nd at the earliest, while indoor dining won't begin until July 8th. That's what they're saying. Are you a restaurant worker deeply affected by COVID-19? Use the hashtag HeadWithJB and share your experience with us on social media. Thank you so much, George. Thank you for being my friend, for being a beautiful soul. Thank you for bringing your authentic Jamaican grown man voice <laughs> to in my head and laying it all for the world to see your pure soul and your good heart. Your son is blessed to have a father like you. Happy Father's Day, George. Happy Father's Day to all of the amazing fathers and men who are making a positive impact on the lives of the young ones around them. We salute you. We love you. We thank God for you. We pray for your safety every single day. Make sure to share this episode, fam. And thank you so much for listening to In My Head. (laughs) 